This episode is sponsored by Audible, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial at audible.com slash serial spoiler. We're also sponsored by Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash serial spoiler and using promo code serial spoiler at checkout. Terms apply and so do conditions. And by GE Podcast Theater. Have you heard The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater? All of season one is available now, so listen and find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. Hello and welcome to Slate's Serial Spoiler Special. I'm Slate Senior Editor Gabriel Roth, and I'm here with Slate's Words Correspondent, Katie Waldman. Hi, Katie. Hi, Gabe. Every week, Katie and I and our guests are going to be discussing Season 2 of the uber-popular podcast Serial, going deeper into the show's themes, exploring its characters and situations, and looking at the ways in which the podcast reverberates in the world. A little later, we'll also be joined by Brendan Kerner, who's the author of Now the Hell Will Start, One Soldier's Flight from the Greatest Manhunt of World War II, which looks at the case of Herman Perry, an American soldier deployed to the Indo-Burmese jungle who suffered an emotional breakdown, shot his lieutenant, and fled his battalion. I think you can see the connection. We'll talk to Brendan about where Bo Bergdahl fits into the history of military desertion. But first, Katie, let's talk about some of the developments in this week's episode. What stood out to you? Well, I hope you're in full battle rattle, Gabe, is what I wanted to say first. Well, I'm definitely um, not wearing the shit pants, Katie. <laughs> um, that's a relief, although I'm recording from D.C., so you're welcome to wear whatever pants um, you want in our, the New our, York studio. Our producer, Sam, insisted that I not wear the shit pants, and so I have <laughs> taken them off. Fair. Um, Well, back to your actual question. Um, I would love to dive in with the sort of preamble that she gave um, when she updated us on the case. Before we get on with episode two, some news. A few days ago, the Army announced that it will take Bo Bergdahl's charges to court-martial, to trial, basically. He's charged with two crimes, desertion and something called misbehavior before the enemy. That second one, it's not used very often. It carries the possibility of a life sentence which doesn't seem likely that would happen. That'd be so extreme. But it does mean Bo could face some amount of prison time if he's convicted. It just, it was such a feeling of deja vu because here we are back to a trial. Everything boils down to this pivotal judicial event. And I was wondering if you also felt such deja vu. Yeah, it was interesting because they they are now coming at it from the opposite end. In season one, it was a trial that took place a decade and a half ago. And in season two, it's a trial that's taking place as the show is airing. So they've done presumably most of their reporting already, but they're keeping us updated on on charges filed in court in between the airing of the first and the second episodes of the season. Uh, it, it must be, I think, interesting and a little scary for the producers. It's as though they've jumped on board a moving train with this story. This is true. And also, um, from the Army perspective, I think Bergdahl does uh, incriminate himself perhaps more than, well, he tries to incriminate the Army. But um, when he speaks about the Jason Bourne fantasies, um, it definitely casts his own credibility into doubt. Yeah. During that introduction to this week's episode, we got the information that he had uh, declined a plea deal because he wanted his day in court. And specifically, he still apparently wants to expose 
the commanding officers at, at his base. It seems like a, a difficult and, and lonely road to hoe, uh, justifying a, a serious offense by pointing to somebody else and saying, well, this other person did something worse. Uh, it's not usually a winning legal strategy in, in civilian courts or I would assume in the military. There was a really interesting line where Sarah Koenig talks about the army being of two minds about Bo. All outward signs have pointed to an army that is of two minds about how to deal with what Bo did, whether to throw the book at him or whether to say, okay, yes, he screwed up in a huge way, but five years with the Taliban, enough is enough. And this was really striking to me because on one hand, you have the army as an institution hating this guy and wanting to sentence him as harshly as it can. And then she has the very interesting observation that people who interact with uh, Bergdahl on a personal level are much more sympathetic and want to see his sentence lightened if he's sentenced at all. It's almost as if those military officials who've come into close contact with Bo are ready to forgive him while the army as an institution continues to be furious. But then at the same time, during the whole saga, um, it's the grand machinery, it's the big construct of the army that is trying to save the guy. And all the individual players who are furious at him individually say they want to shoot him on sight. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, the way the the, the polarity is flipped and the, and the two situations are now mirror images of one another. What was really striking to me was the way in which here's a guy who walked off, who who made his own decision, didn't get captured by the enemy until he had left his post. Uh, and the immediate response is for essentially the, the entire military combat presence in that part of the country to drop everything and look for this one guy. It was striking to me that the, the attitude of the U.S. military at this point is that the life of one soldier or the safety of one soldier is worth that kind of expenditure of resources. What did you think about that? Well, to me, it echoed the um, kind of disturbing comment from the Taliban fighter. Some people are worth uh, more than a thousand um, other individuals, and uh, and he was worth maybe more than 5,000 individuals. It's a mindset that flourishes in very extreme contexts. Um, I can see how in a sort of saving Private Ryan context, it's very noble and beautiful, but it's it's disturbing too. Yeah, it's very interesting. It makes me think about the way in which much of our current operations in that part of the world are being conducted by drone strike because we're so unwilling to risk the lives of Americans that we, we now send robots to do fighting from the air. And when those drones kill Afghan civilians, we say, well, that's collateral damage and we're doing our best to target the right people, but they surround themselves with the population and, and what can we do? And we're willing to, to write off those deaths and when one American soldier goes missing, uh, that's not something that can be written off. It's it's a strange way of looking at things that, that seems to be the way we look at things in America now. I was a little bit confused by why Sarah Koenig was lingering over um, details like the coochie tents. Did Bo Bergdahl or did he not... Uh, find refuge in a coochie tent. Um, and it seems like in season one of Serial, these little facts are very important because they added up to stories that were then uh, told in courts of law, and we would be able to adjudicate Adnan's innocence or guilt based on whether they hung together. But here, 
it didn't seem to matter at all whether he was discovered in a tent or discovered elsewhere. Um, it just seems like sort of the techniques of season one were being revived for season two, except that the stories are totally different. And we actually don't need to know such granular detail anymore. We're more interested in sort of the psychology and the motivation and why he left than what exactly he did when he left. Um, but I don't know. Talk me out of that. Well, a really interesting point. I, I would describe it not as the techniques being revived, but as some of the preoccupations are persisting. That one of the things that season one was about, that, that it became really fundamentally about by the end, was the, the unknowability of things, the impossibility of finding out what actually happened on that one afternoon 15 years ago. And whether Bergdahl was in a coochie tent or not at, at that one time, maybe we're never going to resolve that absolutely. And that doesn't make much difference to the narrative because everybody agrees he walked off his base and everybody agrees that he was captured by the Taliban. But it does remind us that there are things about the world and things about all of these stories that we can never know, that the, the history and these events are never going to be entirely transparent to us. And that seems to be kind of a defining part of Serial's aesthetic and a defining part of its thematic concern. Before we move on, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash serial spoiler and browse the over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash serial spoiler. That's audible.com slash serial spoiler and get started today. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. If you're interested in more true stories from Afghanistan, you might consider I Am Malala, the girl who stood up for education and was shot by the Taliban. The true story of Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala Yousafzai, who refused to be silenced and fought for her right to an education nearly paying the ultimate price in the process. Start your free trial today by going to audible.com slash serial spoiler. One thing that made me laugh is there's the anecdote about the orchard dance. Uh, just to boost his uh, morale and to uh, cheer him up, uh, we stopped at this uh, winery and uh, uh, we did this uh, uh, little dance, uh, uh, traditional dance uh, called a tan for him so he can uh, start eating and an atan is an Afghan dance where typically there's a drum and you move in a circle in unison. So, yeah, apparently they did one for this frightened American soldier in a grape orchard. I felt my mind sort of uh, getting into the mode that that I would get in to read fiction. Yeah, absolutely. That sequence with the traditional dance is so striking, partly because... It's it's almost a, like a culture clash comedy, right? It's you've got this mm-hmm. terrified American soldier who, who's expecting to be killed at any moment, and his captors, you know, they're they're not necessarily going to be super nice to him, but they're not going to kill him, and they don't want him to be terrified. And so, what can they do to reassure him? And what they do is something that makes absolute sense in their culture and is just completely baffling in his culture, which is they take him to a vineyard and they do a traditional dance, which. Uh, hard to imagine anything that would further estrange you from the situation that you were <laughs> in. But 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 they're doing their best in a way. So, you know, you got to give them props for that, I guess. 
Well, but here's an epistemological question, which is, do you think that dance actually happened? Because if we're going to talk about the Taliban as a character or as a group of characters, I did not trust them for a second because this seems like a transparent um, avenue f- for them to spin and for them to accomplish their PR goals. And you could see the stories sort of morphing. Sometimes he's aggressive and he is sort of fighting them off tooth, tooth and nail. And other times he's meek and desperate. Sure. Um, the, 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 the Mujahideen who they spoke to is, is probably not a reliable source. Absolutely. At the same time, uh, that particular piece of spin is a weird piece of spin, right? If you were really thinking in in a sophisticated way about the effect that um, information was going to have on the people hearing it, you would probably figure out that doing a traditional dance that only confused the prisoner, like, does that really advance their PR goals? I don't know. I, I um, it's endearing. It's certainly um, it's a big it's a centerpiece in the narrative they're telling about how they're treating him kindly and as a guest rather than a prisoner. Yes, that's that's absolutely true. I and I I, I agree that we don't know if the if the dance ever took place or not. Um, Bergdahl said in the episode that he he didn't remember any of that happening. At the same time, he also said that this was a time when he he didn't remember very much. Uh, and it makes sense in a way that that when everything has suddenly gone so strange and so terrifying, that your memory would stop functioning in a reliable way. And if something really strange happened to you, it would be hard to know if it was really happening or not. And bear in mind, this is a person who was probably not compass mentis when he decided to walk off of the base and and into the Afghan desert. One reason that it seems uh, not appealing to desert, one of the many reasons, is that the military structure is like this one bastion of order in an incredibly chaotic existence. And I can't imagine uh, turning away from that in order to just like go off into the moil and the chaos. But at the same time, if you found yourself in a situation where your commanding officers were were not bastions of order, where the whole thing seemed to be capricious and and poorly organized, Mm -hmm. it would be absolutely terrifying, right? You're in the middle of this chaotic situation, and then the the infrastructure and the the structure that's supposed to be protecting you and taking care of you and imposing some kind of um, order on the world around you is is failing at doing that job. that it seems to be what Bergdahl was claiming prompted his desertion, and, and, and it's hard not to sympathize with that. Gabe, I have a question for you. Um, as I am listening to this, I keep trying to connect to the various military characters. And with season one, it was Adnan, and it was high school and crushes and classes, and I felt like that you know the everyday listener could relate to this setting, even if horror is erupting in the middle of it, it's very familiar. But something about uh, the Bo Bergdahl story is just so alienating. It's very surreal. I can't imagine the life that these soldiers are living. And does that um, gap uh, affect the way that you listen to the show? Yes, absolutely. And and um, I, I know exactly what you're talking about as somebody who who's never been in the military, but also doesn't really know anybody in the military. Our lives, I think, as as members of the East Coast liberal media elite are, are pretty far removed from the experiences of most people who, who wind up in the military. Uh, at the same time, we've been sending people out to these parts of the world since 
very soon after 9-11 in 2001 when we first sent troops into Afghanistan. Um, so, you know, coming on 15 years now, we've been setting up these outposts in these foreign countries where it, it, there's no way for that experience not to be alien. And we've been putting American citizens in those situations and, and not always doing right by them, I think. Uh, and and so it seems like something that it, the fact that the show requires a little bit of work from me to understand or, or, or to visualize and, and imaginatively comprehend that kind of uh, environment, that, that seems like it's work that's worth doing for, for a lot of different reasons, not just related directly to serial. So I absolutely agree with you that it is worthwhile and it is one of the, when I line up the pros and cons of Serial Season 2, it's one of the pros that it's forcing listeners to comprehend or try to comprehend an experience that's just beyond what so many of us deal with um, in a way even that a high school murder case is not. So in our discussion so far, it, it seems like both of us have a certain amount of sympathy for Bergdahl, that, he, you know, he's a person who, by his own admission, committed a serious crime. He's the protagonist of this story, and, and he's someone for whom we sort of reflexively say, well, he was in a bad situation, he did something drastic, and then he got into an even worse situation, and that's a person that, that I basically, in this story, am sympathetic to. Uh, there are plenty of other people out there who don't feel that way and for whom this guy is a traitor and he deserves everything that he got and then he deserves everything else that may be coming to him in his court-martial. What, what, what do you think about this? I mean, I can appreciate both stances. I think personally I'm affected by the fact that I'm getting this story through the filter of Serial and Serial's project I think is one of radical empathy, whether it's for the Taliban or for someone who may have murdered his high school girlfriend um, or for Bo Bergdahl and we've talked a lot about the intimate medium of podcasting and how hearing people's voices in your ears makes you sort of warm to them or want to sympathize with them and probably as a podcast about a podcast, um, our our reactions are colored by that format. Um, and hopefully we will try to be as fair as possible. But yeah, I, I do come away from Serial feeling connected to everyone who is speaking, including Bo. Can we move on to the livestock vocabulary section of the show where we discuss A, the golden chicken, and B, the cow birth? Yeah, I would love for that to be a regular feature of the show, to, to talk about all of the different agricultural metaphors uh, that, that come up in the course of cereal. Go ahead. I don't have a grand unified theory of livestock in cereal season two as of yet, um, but watch this space. I would observe that the cow, the frightened, bewildered cow that uh, just gives birth to its calf in the presence of the army officers is a stand-in for all of us as we listen to this very bizarre series of events unfold. Yeah. Were you expecting the show to, to make the joke, you know, don't have a cow? I mean, like the military is having a cow yes, over the disappearance exactly, of the soldier. Exactly. And the, the local residents are saying to them in a way, don't have a cow like this one, which is now <laughs> having a cow. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> that made more uh, sense in my head as I was listening to the episode. 
Before we move on, another word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Casper. Don't go another year sleeping on an uncomfortable mattress. You deserve a good night's sleep, and now it's easy. Casper provides an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. These mattresses have just the right sink and just the right bounce. Two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, come together for better nights and brighter days. Even better is their risk-free trial and return policy. Try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. These are American-made mattresses that are affordable. $500 for a twin-sized mattress and $950 for a king-sized mattress. Comparing that to industry averages, that's an outstanding price. Don't wait. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash spoiler and using promo code SERIALSPOILER at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. For the second part of our show, I want to bring Brendan Kerner into the conversation. Brendan is the author of Now the Hell Will Start, One Soldier's Flight from the Greatest Manhunt of World War II, and The Skies Belong to Us, Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking. Brendan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So your first book, Now the Hell Will Start, was about the case of a deserter in World War II who disappeared into the Indo-Burmese jungle. Mm -hmm. When you hear about the case of Bo Bergdahl, what parallels do you see? I think the first one is kind of the delusions of grandeur that they both had. Um, in the case of Herman Perry, um, this is a man who had kind of had a nervous breakdown in the midst of his service in uh, building the Lido Road through uh, northwest Burma. And one day when he was faced with the prospect of going to the stockade uh, for disobeying a commander's direct order, he decided he would walk back up the road and return all the way to Calcutta, about 800 miles away. A completely grandiose and um, ridiculous plan when you break it down. But in the midst of this really harsh environment, in the circumstances he was in with this really tough beef with his commanders, it seemed feasible to him. And in many ways, when I look at Bergdahl's convoluted explanation of why he would go and try to walk, you know, walk to this other base to kind of bring attention to the way things were functioning with his unit... You know, in hindsight, it, it seems ludicrous that he would attempt this. But in his world at that moment, it seemed perfectly reasonable. Hmm. Uh, Brenton, Koenig said that in the seven years of American presence in Afghanistan uh, leading to Bergdahl's capture, there wasn't any precedent for the manhunt that happened afterwards. Was that the case also with Perry? Certainly, the manhunt from Perry was by far the biggest in that section of the war. Um, there was a complication that makes it very non-applicable to uh, Bergdahl's case, in which that Perry, on his way trying to allegedly get to Calcutta by walking, he actually ended up shooting uh, and killing one of his commanding officers who approached him and tried to apprehend him. So that was really the reason uh, for this huge manhunt um, in Indo-Burmese wilderness. Um, but, you know, it was different at that time. I think this whole credo of leave no soldier behind wasn't really quite in effect to the same extent during World War II, especially in kind of a military backwater like Burma at that time. You had, you know, certainly many soldiers who died and their, their relatives didn't find out, whose, whose bodies were not recovered ever. Um, so this whole phenomenon, I think, of, of really having every soldier accounted for has become uh, much stronger over the ensuing decades since World War II. Do you have any thoughts on why that might be? I think part of it is just that the sophistication of, of the management apparatus of the military. Um, you know, in World War II, things were very, very chaotic. You had a conscripted army. Um, you had 
soldiers and commanders who are all very green and inexperienced. You didn't have the quite professional apparatus to manage day-to-day affairs. Uh, it, it, there was much more chaos. Um, in our now all-volunteer, more professional, more technologically adept army, and we certainly have the capacity to track each soldier much, much better. How big a phenomenon is desertion in the war? Yeah, as I found out, it, it was incredibly common, um, much more common than it is today during World War II and especially during Vietnam. Now, you have to draw a distinction between AWOL and desertion. Um, you know, I think at some points during Vietnam, there was an AWOL rate of, of close to 5%. But most of that was people going off base and then returning and being punished for it later. It wasn't people in forward positions walking away from units uh, when they were under threat. So that, that's much more rare. Um, but certainly it happened with great frequency in past conflicts and has always been uh, treated very harshly by my military commanders. Um, in World War II, you know, there were several soldiers executed for crimes that included desertion. Maybe they committed a, a rape or a murder and also were convicted of desertion at court-martial. Um, for example, Herman Perry was convicted of murder as well as desertion, uh, both uh, are death penalty offenses. Um, there was really only one soldier during World War II who was executed for desertion alone, and that was this man, Eddie Slovic, uh, really a boy, I think he was about 18 years old, um, when he was shot in Europe, um, I believe on Eisenhower's direct order. Um, he's, he's somewhat well known because there was a pretty bad movie of the week made about him in the 70s with Martin Sheen. I'm too nervous and too scared to serve in a rifle company, sir. Will his decision not to fight become his worst nightmare? He might even get a death sentence. Desertion in time of war is a capital offense. So certainly it's always been treated very harshly uh, in times when a unit is under stress and threat and someone walks away. It's been punished in order to maintain cohesion, which is so critical to military success in the field. So were you not shocked to hear the interviews with people in Bergdahl's unit who said, yeah, I would have shot him on sight? Absolutely hated him. That's Mark McCrory, a specialist in the 501st, but a different company from Bo. It was like, well, if we see him, he's not going to last, you know? <laughs> like, seriously, you know. or just kind of blustery, like, I'm really pissed? Or, or well, do you, you really mm, think, like, it's possible he could yeah. have gotten? You do? Yeah. That seems so alien to me, but I can imagine that within the culture, the military culture that you're describing, that's not really a far afield statement. Yeah, no, it wasn't shocking at all. Um, I think that's pretty much par for the course. I mean, you have to understand these are men who are bound to each other and depend on each other to survive in extremely hostile environments that, that you and I really can't even begin to fathom. And for someone to walk away from that and, and to really reject the brotherhood they feel uh, you know, with their fellow soldiers is really a grave, grave crime. So I can totally understand the, the impulse his comrades had toward violence. One of the things we see as contributing to, to what he did uh, was his heroic self-image, his delusions of grandeur. And I think you said that that applied to, to Perry as well. Is that something that we see typically in, in cases of desertion? Yeah, in studying these cases, it's a real through line through all of the major incidents of desertion, say, over the past 60 to 70 years. Um, when I first started listening to this season of Serial, the first case that popped to mind wasn't necessarily Herman Perry, but it was actually this man named Charles Robert Jenkins, um, who wrote a book, a memoir, a few years back called The Reluctant Communist. He co-wrote with um, a good friend of mine, the late, great Jim Frederick. 
Jenkins was a soldier stationed uh, along the DMZ in Korea in the 50s. And um, he, like Bergdahl, really started to have a, an emotional break of some sort and really became disillusioned with what he was doing there and hatched this completely delusional plan where he was going to walk across the DMZ or demilitarized zone, surrender to the North Koreans. The North Koreans would then hand him over to the Russians and the Russians would send him back home um, in a prisoner exchange. So that was his whole scheme for how he was going to get out of his situation. That's a heck of a bank shot. Yeah, well, as he, as he uh, admits in his, his memoir, he says, you know, I know this sounds crazy to people reading this in 2000-whatever, but at the time, this is what I firmly believed. I really, I was, I was a boy, I believe he's from West Virginia, not sophisticated or well-traveled at that point in his very young life. Didn't know anything about international relations and the fact that Russia and North Korea weren't friends. Um, <laughs> and really assumed that this would be his ticket home. And I, I think that the line he uses in the book is that I wish I'd known that North Korea was just one big demented prison. And he was actually kept there for, for decades, uh, many decades, um, and actually forced to, to act in movies as the, uh, the Yankee imperial aggressor and teach English in military academies. Um, it, it's a really a great book and a crazy story and really a great example of the kind of delusional thinking that a lot of these deserters have when they hatch their plans that are detailed in the specifics about how they're actually going to get away from their base. But in terms of the, the long-term game plan, make very little sense. Yeah, and it's also so funny because desertion from at least an outside perspective seems like one of the least swashbuckling and heroic and grandiose things that you can possibly do. It's it's retreating from the fighting, right? Mm. So it, do you think there's any tension there in the way these soldiers conceive of themselves? Yeah, I certainly think there's narcissism is, is a strand, that it's all about them. And I think there's very little empathy for what their comrades are going to, to feel. And I think, secondly, I think a lot of these desertion cases are rooted in personal grievances, often with commanders. Um, and this actually comes up in my second book, The Skies Belong to Us. One of my main characters is a man who went AWOL during Vietnam. And one of his big reasons was that he had a dispute with one of his uh, lieutenants over the fact that he hadn't been paid for some certain time. So it was really a financial dispute and a dispute about rank something very bureaucratic and to us seemingly petty, but he actually chose to go AWOL over that. And, and that's when you usually scratch me at the surface of a lot of these desertion and AWOL cases. There's some kind of very deeply personal, particular conflict between the person going on the lam and someone who's above them in the chain of command. And it, am I right in thinking it's that conflict that alienates them from the military unit that they're serving in and, and stops those sort of bonds that keep most soldiers from deserting from holding them back? Yeah, and it's interesting because I think a lot of times when they talk about it later on or even in the moment when they write letters home, they'll talk about um, more kind of political grievances and the fact that they're disillusioned with the purpose of the war or what have you. But when you really scratch, scratch beneath the surface, you will find that you know more often than not, there's something more about some very bitter personal dispute, and the political rationale is kind of a cover for that. It seems to me that anybody who was in a military situation would want desperately to get away from it. And, and if you don't have that feeling of solidarity holding you back, you would just be looking for an opportunity. 
That's the thing about the military, especially once you've been deployed, is that, you know, backing out of it at that moment is not an option. You you have to go in it with with eyes wide open. By the time you're in the field, you can't change your mind. That's the bargain you strike. It's certainly in an all-volunteer force. You know, it's a little bit different when you've been conscripted, as as happened in World War II with Herman Perry. Um, You can kind of be more understanding of why someone would, would all of a sudden decide, I don't want to be part of this. But when you volunteer and you go through basic training and you know kind of what the score is and you've taken your bonus check up front and all those things, you know, once you're, you're, in for a, you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. This is fascinating. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Before we move on, one more word from our sponsor. The Serial Spoiler Special is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Now that season one has wrapped up, the producers, cast, and crew would like to thank the millions of people who listen to this unique hybrid of 21st century audio storytelling and old-fashioned radio serial. And if you haven't heard it yet, all of the first season is still available. Find out why a mysterious 70-year-old alien transmission seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we go, we wanted to share some of the responses to episode one that we received from our listeners. To start, here's a voice memo from John. As you might remember, I suggested last week that Koenig's use of the children's book Zoom to characterize the Bergdahl story is reminiscent of those paranoid thrillers from the 1970s where where we uncover a conspiracy that goes all the way to the top. John wonders if high-level government officials will ultimately feel compelled to weigh in on this season of Serial. I think a lot of this season is going to be looking at individual parts and then can keep zooming back. You know, I, we heard a little soundbite from Obama at the beginning of this episode. That seed is planted. I really would not be surprised if we heard from Obama or some other high-level official by the end of this series. You know, Serial now is a prestige program. It was not season one, at least when it started. But now, you know, Sarah can pull that kind of weight. So I think Zoom, I think Zoom is a clue. I think that's what this season is. And I think that's what it's going to be. That's very interesting. I would just add that um, he seems absolutely right about Serial's ambition, that it sort of charged into season two with uh, clips from the leading Republican presidential candidate and from John McCain and from POTUS. And this is this is a big podcast and they know it. And I think that they're sort of throwing their weight around by taking on such a sprawling, um, important story. It would also, it would be a classic end of his second term Obama move to appear on Serial. That would just be the most Obama thing ever. I don't think it's going to happen because this is a live situation for the military and he's still the commander in chief. And and I think it would be a little complicated. Um, But I bet he wants to. Next, a listener named Jim felt there was a critical omission from episode one. Yes, storytellers, the folks at Serial barely, if ever, put a bad foot forward. And I think they came out of the box very strong on the new season. There was one critical area, though, that I thought that they undersold in the first episode that that needed more substance behind it. And that was the very specific reasons for why Bo Bergdahl saw mismanagement of his military career and of the operations that he experienced in Afghanistan. They do allude to it. Um, 
frequently within the episode, but they don't provide any specific examples. And I did appreciate the way your your um, guest, Adrian, did get into what might have been some specific examples of mismanagement of the soldier and of, of his platoon in Afghanistan. And I'm sure at some point, Serial will get to that as it was the soldier's more compelling reason for leaving his post in Afghanistan. But I thought they needed to get more specific and give some tangible reasons. Thanks for that, Jim. In the first episode, Sarah Kane acknowledged that they weren't going to be able to go into detail about uh, Bergdahl's complaints about his commanders in that episode. She said, I think we'll get to that. Uh, so I, I would expect a future episode of Serial Season 2 to uh, in- investigate exactly what Bergdahl has to say about what was going on uh, that, that he argues prompted him to leave his base. If you're curious and, and impatient and you can't wait for that information, there's a really interesting article by the late Rolling Stone contributing editor Michael Hastings. Uh, came out in June of 2012 when Bo Bergdahl was still being held by the Taliban. Uh, Hastings talked to Bergdahl's parents and, and read his emails that he sent to them before he, he went missing. And uh, it goes into a lot more detail about the problems that were going on at OP Mest. Uh, it's called America's Last Prisoner of War. It's in Rolling Stone. It's available on the web, and we'll put a link to it on our episode page at slate.com. Thanks to all of you who contacted us. If you'd like to send us an email or a voice memo, you can reach us at serialspoilerspecial at gmail.com. We had a lot of emails that we couldn't get to this week, but we read and enjoy all of them. Please keep them coming. That's it for this episode. We'll be back next week following the release of Serial's third episode of season two. And in the meantime, we would love to hear your thoughts and questions about the show. Our email address once again is serialspoilerspecial at gmail.com or record a voice memo on your phone and send it to that address. And hey, if you're looking for something to listen to while you wait for the next episode of Serial, check out Slate's Political Gab Fest, which recently celebrated its 10-year anniversary. The Slate Serial Spoiler Special is produced by Sam Dingman, Laura Mayer is our managing producer, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Find us in iTunes and find more great Panoply shows at itunes.com slash panoply.